Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. But right now we're here for Tom Drury. Applaud. <laughs> He's sitting right there, so just you know. Tom Drury is also the author of the uh, of the Driftless Area, The End of Vandalism and the Black Brook. His fiction has appeared in the New Yorker, Mississippi Review, and Harper's, and he has been named one of Grant's best young American novelists. And I think the uh, the cover of the novel says it all by Esquire, a truly great writer. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Drury. That Granta thing was a while ago. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank uh, Skylight Books and Zachary Slusser for making this reading happen. Um, and to thank all of you for coming out. It's really nice to see. Uh, Pacific is a novel about a TV actress who returns to the Midwest to get her 14-year-old son, whom she hasn't seen in seven years, and bring him to Los Angeles to live with her. So the story is about what happens to the boy in LA and also what happens back home in his absence. So what I'd like to do is read several scenes um, from across the novel to give you a sense of it. Um, I've given them subtitles so you know when there's a, like a change in time or place. The problem with reading one section, maybe this happens to some of you, is like your attention flags for a moment and then you look up and you're lost for the rest of the reading and you know, and so I don't want that to happen. So like this, if your attention flags this time, you know, you don't have to worry because there'll be a new section starting soon. Um, sometimes there'll be like names and places that references that are, you know may not be exactly familiar but I don't think that's going to be a problem just hang with it it'll work um, and one of the note I just want to say this novel started with the idea of I had this uh, thought about a table in someone's house just falling apart of its own accord which I think I've seen happen it was fascinating um, so so now I'll read with the water. It's kind of hard to hear in the back, so maybe try to... Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. This is how the novel begins. Tiny and Micah sat on the back porch of the house where they lived outside the town of Boris, watching the sun go down behind the train tracks and the trees. Say you're carrying something, said Tiny. Yeah, like what? 14 years old, Micah wore a forest green stocking hat. His hair curved like feathers around his calm brown eyes. Something of value, said Tiny. This ashtray here, say this ashtray is of value. The ashtray was made of green glass with yellow seashells glued to the rim. Likely it came from Yellowstone or some other tourist place originally. It might have been of value. Micah picked it up and walked to the end of the porch and back. Good, said Tiny. 
something of value you carry in front of you and never at your side. Well, yeah, well, I just didn't want the ashes to fall out, said Micah. Now say you get in a fight. Yeah, I'm not doing that. What you do is you put your head down and ram them in the solar plexus. It's unexpected. I wouldn't expect it, said Micah. Well, no one does, said Tiny. Sometimes they faint. They almost always fall over. Got it. And never, never get a credit card. How would I pay it back? Well, you wouldn't. That's the idea. It was a cool night in May. The red sky shaded the grass and the shed and the house. Do you still want to go, said Tiny? You, you can change your mind any time. Dad, I've never been in an airplane. We can get Paul Francis to take you up. I mean a real airplane. Tiny nodded. No, I know. I just said that to be saying something. A band-tailed Cooper's hawk came from the west and landed on a hardwood branch with new leaves. There's your hawk, said Tiny. Come to say goodbye. Dan Norman walked out of his house carrying the pieces of a broken table. He and Louise still lived on the old Clar farm on the hill. The table had fallen apart in the living room. It was not bearing unusual weight, and neither Dan nor Louise was nearby when it fell. Just the table's time, apparently. A car pulled slowly into the driveway, and a woman got out and stood in the yellow circle of the yard light. She had long blonde hair, wore a pleated red dress, and white gloves. You don't remember me, she said. I do, said Dan. Joan Gower. He shifted the table pieces over to his left arm, and they shook hands. Did you know we get second chances, Sheriff? Said Joan. Sometimes. I'd say I knew that. He will turn again and have compassion upon us and subdue our iniquities. I'm not sheriff anymore, though, said Dan. The door of the house opened and Louise came out wearing a long white button-down shirt as a dress. Who are you talking to? Joan Gower. Really? Louise had tangled red hair, wild and alive with the light of the house behind her. Is this business? I'm getting my son back, said Joan. Give me those, love, said Louise. She took the table parts from Dan and headed for the hedge behind the house. Louise put the wood in the trash burner and went on to the barn, the dust of the old farmyard cool and powdery on her feet. Empty and dark as a church, the barn was no longer used for anything. Louise climbed the ladder and walked across the floor of the hayloft. The planks had been worn smooth by decades of boots and bales and the changing of seasons. She sat in the open door, dangled her bare legs over the side, lit a cigarette, and smoked in the night. Dan and Joan were down there talking in the yard. Louise listened to the quiet sound of their voices. What they were saying, she could not tell. She saw Joan reach up and put her hand on Dan's shoulder and then his face. The gesture made Louise happy for some reason. Maybe that it was beautiful, a graceful sight to be seen in the country, whatever else you might think of it. This scene is called Goodbye to the Goat. Tiny stood behind his mother, gazing absently into the panoramic view of her Hawaiian shirt. The shirt was dark blue and green and depicted nightfall in an island village of palm trees and grass huts with yellow lights burning in the windows. A pretty place. Then Micah put thumb and finger to the corners of his mouth and whistled. Pretty soon, an old doe goat crept around the side of the house. Micah and Lyris had raised her together. 
The goat came soft-footed down the grass. The reds and whites of her coats had, had coat had faded to shades of silver. She surveyed the visitors and then stared at Mike as if to say, oh, wait a minute, you're leaving? That's what this is all about? Micah fell to his knees and roughed up the goat's long and matted coat. You could see him trying not to cry, but he did anyway. The goat stared with slotted eyes at the road that went by the house. This is harder than I thought it would be, said Micah. Tiny and his mother stood in the yard watching Joan's car go around the bend. A bank of blue and gray clouds moved in, hiding the sun. Colette took out a pipe and a pouch of tobacco and proceeded to smoke. And then there was one, she said. Looking that way, said Tiny softly. You think he's doing the right thing? He might be. She walked off to her truck and Tiny went into the house, closed the door and walked up the stairs with the shoulders bumping the walls. Micah's bed was made with a blanket of red and black plaid and a light blue pillow centered beneath the headboard. A hockey stick leaned in the corner, blade wrapped in frayed electrical tape near an old poster from a movie about heroic dogs. The bed spring wheezed like an accordion as Tiny sat down at the foot of the bed. A car went by, the road became quiet, and light rain began to fall against the window. He sat with his forearms on his knees and his hands folded, remembering when the goat was young, how she and Micah would dance around the yard. This is called The Knife Scene, and it concerns Joan Gower, uh, who is a supporting actress in a television crime show called Forensic Mystic. The next day, Joan was at an auto salvage yard off Mission Road shooting Forensic Mystic. Most of the autos seemed beyond salvaging. They were twisted and sliced, mangled and melted, and the yard workers had stacked them into neat mounds like city blocks with paths running between. The yard made the highway system seem like the work of an evil god. Joan sat in a mallard green canvas chair beneath a parasol. In this scene, she would throw away a knife that had been used in a murder. Her character, Sister Mia, would debate whether to turn it in to the police. That was her conflict. Everyone must have an arc and a conflict. Joan strolled the junkyard path, slapping the knife blade on her thigh. An athletic brunette walked backwards, steady cam strapped on her body. And then they laid dolly tracks and filmed Joan's walk from the side. She flung knife after knife into a mountain of wrecked cars. The prop master had knives to spare. Joan wondered if archaeologists would find the knives someday and deduce that people had fought over the cars. At lunchtime, she got an orange from the food tables and walked to the fringe of the salvage yard where she could see the Los Angeles River and the skyline across the way. She held the orange in her hands, tearing the rind with her teeth. Dark ribbon of water moved slowly down the trough of the riverbed. She thought she would soon be written out of the show. This part is called, Joan Reads for the Role of a Woman Visited by the Ghost of Davy Crockett. <laughs> After reading her lines, Joan was in tears. She never had trouble finding the emotions in the words. I don't know what to say, said the director. Now, there is some nudity, said the associate producer. I know, said Joan. Could you undress? Mm -hmm. Joan stepped out of her shoes, unbuttoned her dress, slipped it off her shoulders, and let it fall. She raised her arms, hands cupped as if holding morning doves that would fly away on violet wings. They were writing notes. Now, Joan, if you could lie on the bed, 
Of course, the bed wasn't there for the fun of it. She crossed the room and lay down, closed her eyes, and pretended she heard rain on rooftops. She hadn't worked her body into this shape to be ashamed before filmmakers. She was the dream that troubled their sleep, lying ageless as they grew older and older. Joan opened her eyes. The men had gathered around the bed as if visiting a sick friend. <laughs> Thank you, Joan, said the director. I find myself still lost in your reading. We will be in touch. <laughs> Joan put her clothes on, shook hands with everyone, and left a manila envelope with her resume and headshot. She rode down in an elevator with cheap golden walls. I certainly hope I get that part, she said. And this section is called Micah's High School Entrance Essay. Joan had to find a school for Micah in the fall. She made packets with an 8x10 glossy transcripts and an essay he'd written. This is how the essay started. When I was small, I survived a tornado that blew the van in which I was a passenger through a silo. The wind was so loud that all the world and its things seemed to be made of sound waves. Tools floated about like you might pick one from the air as an astronaut would in zero gravity. The tornado taught me that you can get in and out of trouble in unexpected ways. I used to have a goat who would knock things over and pin them with her four legs as if to say, now it is mine. My favorite subject is world history. I think it was a bad deal when the citizen farmers were forced to move to Rome where they had nothing to do in the second century. <laughs> Joan thought the essay was thoughtful and creative, and she appreciated mention of the tornado, which they'd gone through together. She mailed ap applications to the Weaving School, Adamantine Prep, Mary Ellen Pleasant Country Day, Brentwood Polyphonic, and Our Lady of Good Counsel on the Hill. None of the schools had an opening for Micah. Our Lady of Good Counsel on the Hill put him on a waiting list. This next scene is back in the Midwest. It's called Albert Interviews Sandra Zolma. Sometimes Albert Robichaud wrote little profiles for the Stone City newspaper. He would drive around waiting for someone to catch his eye, an ice skater, a hobo, a bat biologist, someone doing something different that could be told in 400 words. Late one afternoon, he happened on Sandra Zolma practicing sword moves with a yardstick by the War Memorial. She paused in her routine as Albert introduced himself. Well, I'll tell you my story, she said, but first you have to buy me a drink. Albert agreed, thinking this would make a good beginning. They crossed the street and walked down to a tavern called Bruiser's, Sandra tapping the yardstick on the sidewalk like a blind woman. Albert bought beers, took them to the booth, and opened his notebook to an empty page. Sandra talked as Albert took notes. After a while, he stopped taking notes. According to Sandra, she had come to the Midwest in a tunnel that ran beneath the ocean. She didn't know how long this took, months probably, or a year. The tunnel was smooth and well-lighted at first, but eventually became dark and cold and narrow. She starved and she stumbled. The rocks cut her hands and feet. Finally, she collapsed, falling into a deep sleep. When she woke, her hair had grown long and matted. Her clothes turned to rags. She saw a light that had not been there before. Either she'd walked without knowing or someone had moved her. She crawled to the end of the tunnel, coming out on a ledge above a river. A troop of Boy Scouts waded across and handed up a canteen of water, and she drank it all down and stood howling above the scouts while flocks of birds flew from the ravine. 
I wonder if you shouldn't talk to someone about your stories, said Albert. I'm talking to you, she said. I mean someone more like a doctor. <laughs> Sandra set the yardstick on edge and there it stood. Oh, doctors don't know anything, she said. What is your blood pressure? Do you have thoughts of hurting yourself or others? That's what they know. Don't be afraid. You will never find a truer friend than me. We can sleep together in the Continental Hotel. Albert drew an exclamation point on his reporter's notebook. I'm not sure this is working out, he said. At that moment, the owner of the bar came up from the basement with a bottle of tequila. When he saw Sandra, he hurried across the bar room. What did I say about, say about that stick, he said. Remind me, said Sandra. You're not to come in here with that. Sandra smiled. Well, too bad, because I already have, and this is a public place. The true-value yardstick of wheat-colored wood and black fractions lay across the table with Sandra's hand hovering. If you can take it from me, she said, I will scrub tables in this bar for one year without pay. I wouldn't even want that, said the bar owner. <laughs> he and Albert reached for the yardstick, which jumped to Sandra's hand. She slashed the stick through the air, hitting the man in the throat. He fell back, knocked over a chair, dropped the bottle he was carrying, and held his neck with his hands. Albert and Sandra stepped from the booth, holding opposite ends of the yardstick and circling each other as in some ritual. A smile came over Sandra's face, and a reddish light shone around her white hair. She yanked on the yardstick. Albert lurched forward, and she struck his face with the heel of her hand, at which point he let go. She backed to the door bruisers as Albert and the bar patrons gathered warily around her. First one to move is the last one to get up, she said. They considered the sequence implied by this threat. With one hand behind her back, Sandra found the doorknob and slipped out of the bar. They saw her walking past the window. Is she a friend of yours, said the barman. <laughs> I just met her, said Albert. That crazy fuck does not come in here again. Later that same day, Don Gary's tombstone dealership closed for the day and Lyra sat on the steps waiting for Albert and looking at the moon above the city. Don Gary locked the door and walked past her in his brown saddle shoes. Good night, Miss Darling, he said. Good night, Don. Lyra's liked it at night when she was alone and Albert on his way. She felt free and original with him, their old lives like train cars uncoupled and falling away. When he drove up, she got in the car and kissed him. He had a bruise under his eye, and driving home, he told her of his attempt to interview Sandra Zolma. Back at the apartment, Lyris led Albert by the hand to the bathroom, where they stood looking at the welt on his cheekbone in the medicine cabinet mirror. Albert said it was nothing, but Lyris insisted on treating it. She washed and dried her hands and took a small green bottle from the medicine chest. Albert sat on the toilet lid, looking up at the light fixture as she painted antiseptic beneath his eye with a stiff black brush built into the cap of the bottle. Now it looks really terrible, she said. And then, for no reason other than play, she painted a stripe under the other eye. Now you're a football player. She never hit me there, said Albert. Oh, but I like this look, said Lyris. They went into the bedroom and closed the door. The room was dark, except for the light from the windows. He undressed her, rolled her black tights down. Lyris breathed slowly, fingers trembling at his sides. Being with Albert was more than she'd ever expected. 
They liked making love in the early hours of the night when time lay like emptiness before them. They liked being close to coming. The blue light from the street made a halo around the bed. Two hours went by, the softest kiss of the night, and they rested, flat on their backs beneath the sheet. Lyra's traced with her fingers the mark she had painted on his face. Albert slept. She crossed his body with her leg and lay her head on his shoulder. This was the best, the most bearable loneliness. Topanga Canyon, Micah, Charlotte, and Pallas Athena. The horse was a Dutch warm blood named Pallas Athena. In her stall, Charlotte showed Micah how scratching Pallas at the base of her mane made her lift her head and move her lips strangely, as if talking to herself. Charlotte tacked the horse with saddle and bridle, easing the bit in with cupped hand. She put on a plastic helmet and mounted up. Micah had ridden three times, got thrown once. He found horses hard to read. Their thoughts might go back to the beginning of horse time, or they might be afraid of a candy wrapper on the ground. He was wary of anything that big that bit. Charlotte rode the horse at a walk to the ring. Mike opened the gate and let the shadow of the horse pass by and latched the gate and stood leaning on the fence with his arms over the rail. The sun was down, light shone around the ring. Horse and rider walked and trotted for a while, then picked up a canter. Charlotte pushed Pallas forward with her hips. Mane and braids rose and fell in rhythm. Pallas's hooves drummed on sand and her breath went huff, huff, huff. This part um, is called Dykstra of the Desert. Five or six times a year, Joan visited a fortune teller named Dykstra in the desert. He lived on a long gravel road off Old Woman Springs Road, north of 29 Palms Highway, in the isolated beauty of that country. Much as she loved the Joshua trees and the high desert, Joan could not have lived alone here as Dykstra did. The darkness would close around her. She would be out of her mind in a matter of days. Dykstra's house was three stories tall and the paint had been peeled away by the wind. Dusty velvet curtains moved in the windows, ceramics lined the sills. The place looked like something from an old photograph, but for a satellite dish off to the side. Dykstra made pottery that he sold in the towns along the highway. And he used the potter's wheel for divination as well. He met her at the front door. In his 70s, he wore a pith helmet, khaki shirt and shorts, light green socks up to his knees, and battered desert boots. Years ago, he'd been a marine researcher in Monterey, but one day he got the bends while diving and in the recompression chamber received a vision of living in the desert. They went into the kitchen and sat on opposite sides of the potter's wheel. Beside the wheel, a cactus grew in a terracotta pot, and the Palm Springs yellow pages lay on the wooden floor. So how are things, said Dykstra. Well, I got a role in a movie, and my son came to live with us, said Joan. He's 14 and doing, doing pretty well, I think. He's made friends, got on the volley volleyball team at school. The other night, he didn't come home until 3 in the morning. You must have been worried. I was asleep. He came in and woke me up. I can't stay mad at him. I can't even get mad at him. I was out of his life for a long time. This happens with families. Dykstra picked up the yellow pages and handed them to Joan. She let the book fall open randomly in her lap. She tore out a page and placed it on the wheel for the turning of clay. Dykstra secured the page with scotch tape. Now think back to the night your son woke you up. The transition from sleep is a time when insight is strongest. Okay, doing that, said Joan. 
Dijkstra placed his hands on his knees and worked a foot treadle. The potter's wheel began to turn and the right angles of the page gave way to a circle spinning on the wheel. Now this is the part we don't like so much, said Dijkstra. It hurts, said Joan. What is pain? She remembered the night. The bedroom door creaked. Micah said he was home. Joan got out of bed. They went into the hallway and she held his arms and looked into his eyes. The part of the mother will be played this evening by Joan Gower. Micah's eyes were the innocent cinnamon color they always were. Now she pricked her finger on a cactus thorn and holding her hand over the wheel, she squeezed out a drop of blood that fell to the spinning page, a dark blot dissolving in motion. You did that very well, said Dykstra. He left off pedaling and watched the wheel as it slowed and stopped. Joan pressed her fingertip to her teeth. The blood had made a nebula pattern among the names and numbers that the fortune teller then examined with a magnifying glass. You will sleep with a man in a small house, he said. There is forest all around. You don't know how you feel about him. Oh, wait, I, I know what that is, said Joan. The plot of the movie I'm going to be in, very good. As for your son, he will be a good volleyball player. And many people will come to see him play. But when you see him play, that game he will lose. That's not fair, said Joan. Maybe I should stay away. Dykstra set the magnifying glass on the wheel. He put a drop of neosporin on Joan's fingertip and wrapped it with a Band-Aid. Perhaps you could go to a game that is not critical in the standings. <laughs> yeah, I just hate to be the cause of him losing. You're not. It's just the way it happens. You won't avoid seeing it. He won't avoid losing. What else? You should be careful about this movie role. It might be tempting to leave television, but maybe that's not the best way to go. Is that in the blood? <laughs> not really, he said. I'm just thinking of television actors who have tried to make that transition <laughs> and, you know, ended up neither here nor there. And there's a young woman, help me, around your son. Oh, that's probably Charlotte. She is important to him. Hmm, already. He will fight for her. Will she break his heart? Well, she's his first love. What else would she do? But you just have to let that go. He has more wisdom than you might think. I knew it. Joan rubbed her bandaged finger and asked how Dykstra's investments were doing. Besides making pottery and telling fortunes, he traded stocks on a computer in the living room. <laughs> well, I try not to hold anything more than three days, he said. The whole thing could go over at any time. Joan drove back to the city through fields of windmills. She knew better than to explain Dykstra's method to people because the blood part would seem weird, but it made sense to her, requiring more input from the sitter than tarot or palmistry, which people had no problem with. This next part is called uh, Beverly Hills, Micah and Thea talk about sex. Finally, they went back to Thea's room and lay on the bed with their heads at opposite ends. <laughs> you have strange toes, said Micah. Why, thank you. Like little soldiers on a hill. Thea sat up on her elbows to look at her feet. Do they seem different than other toes? Yours are the only ones I've studied, said Micah. Take your socks off. Oh, you don't want to see my feet. Take them off. You made fun of mine. Micah sat up, took his socks off, and showed her his broken toes. This one I tripped on the stairs and it bent back, he said. This one I was walking on the rail and fell off and jammed it on a cross tie. Did it hurt? Oh, yeah. It even bled, inside and out. You should never walk on railroad tracks, said Thea. People get killed. Yeah, the train don't go through anymore, said Micah. Weeds are growing up through the tracks. 
Oh well, the changing face of America, said Thea. <laughs> Charlotte said you kissed. What about it? Was it good? Yeah, I bet. And what else? Nothing else. You would like something else. Micah turned on his side, looking past Thea's feet at a poster of Akira walking down to his red motorcycle. I wouldn't know where to begin, he said. Yes. Do you feel that way? Definitely, said Thea. I mean, where to begin? But then what, said Thea. Then what? And they say that the first time might not be that good. I've heard that too. Maybe you could skip the first time and just go right to the second time. Or you'll know when the time is right, said Thea, which sounds good, but I'm not sure that you would know. Or the time might be right for one person, when for the other person, actually the time could be better. You can't overthink it. Would you kiss me, said Thea, if the time was right? She laughed and threw a pillow at him. Are you out of your mind, she said. I don't want you to kiss me. This is uh, the Midwest, nighttime worries. I feel like I could talk all night, said Louise. I feel like having some grapes. Would you like some grapes? What, said Dan? Would you like some grapes? What time is it? Quarter to three, Louise said. I took cold medicine. Dan sat up. If we're going to have grapes, I would have a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> they put on their robes and tied them tight against the cold, and Louise followed Dan down the stairs with her hands on his shoulders, steering his sleepy body. Louise paused on the landing. You know how it is when you're awake and you try to wake the other person up, but you know they're not going to, and you're alone in the world with your nighttime worries in the morning far away? Dan reached back and laid his hand on top of hers and they continued down the stairs. He turned on the counter light and stood motionless for a moment, then took a loaf of bread from the cupboard and Swiss cheese and mustard from the refrigerator. Would you like a grilled cheese? That's okay, said Louise. She sat at the table picking green grapes from a wooden bowl. Dan heated a square black skillet and put the sandwich on and covered it with the lid of a saucepan. He stood by the windows running water into a glass. Are you seeing this, he said. She had been looking at him, but only then did she notice the giant snowflake sliding like paper against the glass. Do you remember, she said, how you would have to go out on nights like this? I do. There's a three-car pileup, a fire, a domestic, said Louise. You better flip your sandwich, love. Dan lifted the lid and turned the sandwich over. He knit his fingers behind his neck and yawned. He had an extreme yawn like that of a TV lion on the belt. <laughs> And you'd go out in your nightgown and boots to warm up the cruiser, he said. She put a grape in her mouth, sliced it clean down the middle with her front teeth. I did, didn't I? Sometimes I did. Dan sliced the grilled cheese on the diagonal and brought it to the table. He missed a little more of his sideburns every time he shaved and was beginning to look like someone in a western. What are your nighttime worries, he said. There's so many, she said. That I haven't been kind? That there's a meanness in me? That we will die? Well, that last part is the only true one. Do you look at the obituaries, said Louise? People are living older and older, but they're also dying younger and younger. I know what you mean. And then we'll be done, and they'll sell our house, and it'll be like we were never here. I think of the people that will buy our house. I can see them walking from room to room, thinking, oh, we can do way better than those other people did. <laughs> you know, like everyone does when they look at a house. <laughs> do you worry about that? Not till you said it, said Dan. <laughs> we probably have 30 years anyway, maybe more. I could see us being really old. Think how many things will happen in that time. 
Like what? I don't know. People going to the moon on vacation. Would you go to the moon? I don't think I would. Well, if they fixed it up a little bit, said Dan. <laughs> I think I'm bothering Lyris and Albert. Did they say that? No. Well, I think they would. They're not shy people. They are, though, said Louise. You don't know them like I do. One night I got mixed up and said I was her mother. I wouldn't fault you for that. I just wish we had our girl, whispered Louise. Dan nodded, breathing quietly. Then she could have the house, and she could be running through it. And someday her kids could be running through it. And we would say, slow down, you're going to hurt yourself. She laid her head on her arms. This is what the night does, she said. Put sad things in your mind. And we skip this part. Uh, part the last, Micah at Venice Beach. If all the midways of all the fairs he'd ever seen were pushed to the edge of the continent, Micah thought they would make a place like Venice Beach. Music played and dogs barked, skateboards clacked, and seagulls pierced the ocean air with their greedy calls. Lots of birds were hungry, but few had the seagull's sense of owning all things that could be eaten. Refugee, rops, refugee rows of shops sold henna tattoos and massages, shark teeth and tarot readings, your name on a grain of sand. Many parts of Los Angeles had next to no pedestrians, and that might have been because they were all here and dressed like professional athletes on their day off. Along the waterfront promenade, they traveled on foot and on skates, on rented bicycles and Segway scooters that had caught on here, if nowhere else. One man on a Segway rode about, pointing things out to himself and commenting into a tape recorder. A Segway family got, glided along, the children on smaller models. And painted on the walls of a hostel, and watching it all, was the Venus of Venice Beach, who wore blue leggings and a pink camisole, and thought that history was myth. Micah played volleyball on the sand beside the flat white ocean. He didn't play hard in these games. He'd smoke a serve or smother a spike sometimes, but in the spirit of the beach, he was not looking to show anyone up. Late one day, he walked along the row of shops. A man skated in and out of the crowd with an electric guitar, a body-mounted amp, and a bandolier of batteries. He plucked complex chords that lingered as he glided by. Fly on, little wing, said a woman in a straw hat. Micah walked into a medical marijuana shop, a clean and orderly space with canvas on it. It was like a candy store with backlit cabinets and glass counters offering weed in plastic bags and glass jars with silver lids. And how are we today, said a man in a white coat with pens in the pocket. Very well, thank you, said Micah. I'd like to get certified. How old are you? Fifteen. You have to be eighteen or accompanied by a parent or guardian. Can you bring your mother or father in? No. What's the problem? Well, they just wouldn't. No, I mean the medical problem. Ringing in the ears, said Micah. Come back when you are older and have a California ID. Will you do that? Oh, probably not, said Micah. <laughs> he left the shop and ate a hot dog on a bench facing the ocean. He felt a profound and enjoyable emptiness. Soon a man in his twenties came along and sat beside him. He had a red beard and sunglasses and worn, worn leather sandals. I saw you at the marijuana docks, he said. You have to be 18. The man took a silver cigarette case from his pocket and gave Mike a joint. Look 18 to me. Thank you. The man's name was Mark. He'd come down from Olympia after graduating from college. His father was a software maker who'd helped him get a little house and a shop that sold shirts and jewelry. I've seen you playing volleyball. 
Yeah, I like it. Micah got high, his thoughts fading to simple awareness of the ocean. He felt made of stone. If seagulls attacked, he would probably just sit there getting pecked. You never knew what you were getting with weed. Probably someday it would all be as uniform as alcohol. The sun bled red into the water and the ringing in his ears fell to a whisper. I like volleyball, he said. You want to get in the real game? I know some people, they play at night on other beaches. It gets pretty serious. Where would you end up if you just started swimming, said Micah. Channel Islands. How far is that? Mm, 20 miles. And then what? Japan. How far is that? Mm, it's way out there. <laughs> I want to go to Japan. Fuck, man, said Mark. Fly out LAX tonight. You got the money. I don't have the money. Japan is beautiful, said Mark. Have you been there? No. Mark invited Micah to have supper with him and his girlfriend. They lived in a narrow yellow house with flowers and vines on the street going down to the ocean. You could see far into the house from the street. The furniture was white and orange and green and there were paper lanterns. Mark's girlfriend, Beth, had green eyes, freckles, and strawberry blonde hair parted on the side. She didn't mind that her boyfriend had brought home a stray from the beach. Maybe people were like that here. Micah called Joan to say he was having supper with friends. Now that they were living in the apartment, she had a better sense of when he was home and when he wasn't. They had vegetarian curry, soft bread called naan in a woven basket, red wine and $2 bottles from Trader Joe's. Beth came from St. Louis. She was a nurse and the daughter of a minister who was very strict and she was glad to be away from his world. She worked at a clinic in Lomita and painted in her spare time. She liked to paint little bits of ocean as seen through cars or people's legs or over rooftops. After supper, they sat in the living room, and Micah explained how he got expelled from school. They thought it was a wonderful story, though as Micah told it, he saw that it was a silly thing that didn't amount to much and wouldn't make the school right. Micah stayed the night on Mark and Beth's couch. He could not sleep and went to the kitchen sink and drank glass after glass of water. A friendly light shone from beneath the cupboards. He went back to the front room and lay down beneath the quilt. An hour later, he heard the refrigerator open, and then Beth came into the front room with a bottle of grapefruit juice. Sleeping, she said. Not yet. She placed pills in his hand. What is it? Painkiller. It helps you sleep? It passes the time till you do. Micah looked at her and she said, I'm a nurse, baby. First, I do no harm. They took the pills and washed them down with the grapefruit juice and went out to sit on the front porch by the street. It was a clear night. The moon rode high above the blue roofs of the beach town. Micah felt no restlessness, no sorrow. There was a soft and intermittent breeze. After a while, skateboarders came rolling down the street. They leaned back, looking around with long hair and cool blank expressions. There they go, said Micah, down to the sea. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Traditionally, there's a question and answer. Um, and nobody asked any questions, and so we're done. But um, I, I will open it. If anybody has a question, please ask away. Who was the first scene that inspired your book? First scene that inspired the book? Well, like I said, it was a table falling apart. And I thought about where it would fall apart, and I realized it would fall apart in the, in the house of um, 
Dan and uh, Louise. And uh, and then I thought, see, and then here's another thing. I was on a radio show one time in New York after a book called Hunts and Dreams came out. It was about some of the same characters. And uh, the host said, you know, what's going to happen to Joan? Is she ever going to come back? Because at the end of Hunts and Dreams, you don't know if she's coming back or not. And she was on her way to making her way in this kind of wayward path that is very like Joan toward Minnesota. And I thought, well, she might end up in Minneapolis where we have the Guthrie Theater and many other fine theaters. So I thought, like, this would be a good time. I mean, I'm interested now in what Joan, and I started writing this in 2010. I'm interested now, and The Hunts and Dreams came out in 2000. So I was interested in what, you know, does Joan come back? And I thought, yeah, she probably would. And it would be really cool if somehow Hope against hope, she had actually become an actress in Hollywood, you know. So that's where it started. And then I just, you know, followed it. Any other questions? Can you talk about your relationship with Los Angeles? Yeah, I uh, moved here in 2004, I think, um, and uh, lived here until 2010. Uh, in, I was finishing a book called The Driftless Area which came out in 2006 and then I had uh, no money and um, <laughs> and so I went to um, uh, I saw an ad for a museum and uh, somebody who's here tonight actually hired me uh, to work on the museum's website so I was living in Pasadena you know, no longer writing at home, driving across town. And I, you know, I tried to stay off three ways to go a different way on the surface streets, which we have in Los Angeles, and that's what they call them here, I guess. And, um, you know, and I'd go a different way every time, and I began to really be fascinated by Los Angeles. The look of it, the light, the different neighborhoods, the, the sort of patchwork architecture, and I began taking photographs. So I... It, like on my way to work and then on my way back and that was actually when the light was best in the morning and you know in the evening and uh, I made a website uh, called Signs of Los Angeles and posted uh, you know over 400 photos to that over the years and uh, so I'm really really fond of Los Angeles and it was really cool to get back here I haven't been here in probably three years and see all these obscure streets that I remember I drove down this street or see like I took a picture of that building you know so uh, I I like Los Angeles a lot so I think we have a pretty good relationship <laughs> any other questions okay well thank you very much You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.